J'aime prendre le temps qu'il me faut pour vivre. Regarder autour tout en cherchant l'amour. J'aime la musique et les chansons magiques. J'aime le soleil et l'amour retournel. J'aime le matin comme prendre-moi elle se réveille. J'aime le matin quand près de moi elle se réveille. J'aime bien la nuit dans le nid du paradis. Dis-moi qu'est-ce que tu penses. Dis-moi qu'est-ce que tu penses. Qu'est-ce que tu préfères. Qu'est-ce qu'il te faut pour monter, monter, monter plus haut. Aimes-tu la vie comme moi. Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and I welcome you to another episode on the weeb shitlib super spy, about whom I am doing re really the longest series I've ever done on this show. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it, the reason is just that He's the first and the last Japanologist, which is, that's my field, and uh, I've thought about it a lot over the years. He's the first and the last Japanologist who openly spoke about how to rule Japan <laughs> on behalf of the Anglo-American alliance uh, while studying pre-modern Japanese literature, and those two interests were inseparably connected in his mind and in the sort of consciousness of the discipline at that time. And that was something that fell apart after that. And it still hasn't, in a way, the, the discipline still hasn't recovered or it hasn't found a new mission statement in any sort of way. It's always just imitating various things. You know, people write just kind of undergrad level uh, applications of Spivak to this and that which I think she herself would have hated. I was just reading something that shall remain nameless along these lines. Um, I've, ta I've been to a restaurant with her on the department credit card up on the Upper West Side, and uh, I don't know. I don't think she would have liked it, but she wouldn't have liked anything else either. She would have just insisted everything is, is fragmented eternally, and uh, you just can't do anything. Although props to her in general for uh, being against caste discrimination and going out of her way to discuss that on the occasions that I met her and saw her talk, which is more than you can say for Kamala Harris's uh, Brahmin mother, right? I mean, she's uh, South Asian and all that, but she's a Brahmin like many people in Silicon Valley, and there actually is quite a lot of caste discrimination in California, and that was... There was a law against it that was passed, but Gavin Gruesome, Gavin Newsom, vetoed that, the California governor. And uh, I think my take is that that's because literally caste, a caste society is where particularly the California faction of the ruling class really wants to take us next. So specifically that they will not allow Right, because they're going to go there. They're going to go there, but but under a disguise of 
liberal democracy and, and all that, you know, it's going to look like glossy liberal stuff. And it's all determined by algorithm who belongs to what, what cast and who, you know, gets the, the booster uh, mRNA and who gets the handicap mRNA. Uh, who knows if they'll actually come up with boosters. You know, I gotta, I gotta hand it once again to Red Kahina, Molly Klein, uh, quite correct in saying that the ruling class always promises sort of upgrades or something like superhumanity, Übermensch, right? But uh, all they really can create is Untermenschen. All they can really do is handicap the working class. But even when they do that, don't you get Al-Qasim brigades, for example, um, you get people rising up, you get people figuring out, you get people growing stronger, and that's just life, folks. That's just life, and that's the that's why it's so beautiful. And that at whatever force comes against it, it will react, it will evolve, it will change. Not in some kind of eugenicist way, but in the real, uh, actual, organic force that it has. And it foils the eugenicists again and again. So I don't know if you if you like this uh, Ivan Morris stuff or, or not. Uh, I, uh, there's much more to come if you if you're just kind of waiting it out. Um, but that's why I'm doing it. I have like a deep investment in this for better or for worse. So we got through um, what I wanted to say about Monica Brau's monumental. Um, Jordan Erwartheim, or something like that, which means the earth is our home. Uh, really great study of Ivan Morris's mother, Edita Morris, who was this kind of communist in Kashmir in the 20th century, mid, mid 20th century, we'll say, which I was terrifyingly able to read despite it being in Swedish just by fucking it into Google Translate. So what do you know? That's the world we live in. And now I'm ready to move on to the memoirs of the wives. Ivan Morris has three women in his life who write memoirs and talk about him a lot. I have uh, maybe this time the least to say about his ballerina wife, Ogawa Ayako. Uh, Ogawa Ayako wrote a really fun memoir. Um, God, I would have loved to meet her. She's dead, uh, she, but she's part of this generation of young Japanese who, after the war, went abroad and they received, they were lavished with a lot of kind of Marshall Plan scholarships and got, to, got educated in the West, the capitalist West, and they became ambassadors for Japanese culture in the Cold War. And Ogawa Ayako is no different. She was the daughter of screenwriter Ogawa Masashi. And uh, he's not terribly famous. He doesn't have a Wikipedia, as far as I know. Um, but he got her doing ballet from a very young age. And she got a scholarship to go and join the Royal Ballet in Britain. And she became a kind of mentee of... Dame Margot Fontaine, who was a major actress in the Royal Ballet at the time. And she had actually helped to bring over Rudolf Nureyev, who was kind of the first real cultural defector of the Cold War. And a lot of people have talked about American Cold War strategy 
Anglo-American, I think, right? Very often it looks like the Brits are the brains and the Americans provide the brawn a lot of the time. I don't know if that's changed now. But anyway, of course, the Anglo-American Cold War strategy. At first, America is, you know, not a country with a lot of high culture that, that they can boast to the world about. And you could argue that the communist argument at the time, uh, which is that the kind of unbridled capitalism and settler colonialism that America was founded on, and slavery and all the rest of that, uh, really does crush culture. It provides people with not, no opportunity to develop culture over time and all of this. You know, the only people who have time to pursue culture, uh, such as you would need, uh, you do. There, there's a lot to be said for someone who has been doing something since they were a child, right? And, uh, you know, that kind of training from a real young age is, is really good. And uh, the people who reach the highest levels in a lot of these, these crafts, right, are people who had the opportunity to choose when they were a child to really pursue these things, right? And even if you don't have particular talent, it really does provide quite a boost in a child's development if, if you get them into things like music and uh, drawing, painting things like this, right, even if they're not going to be some kind of genius. Uh, but how many, how many great uh, geniuses have been lost under uh, the rubble of this class struggle and uh, class domination, that, of which America is a, is a great representative, right? So that argument has a lot of merit, and that was where they were at the time, so they had to make a, a different sort of argument and change the conversation, and as always, masters of spin, you know, they threw a whole lot of money into abstract expressionism. This is a famous story, things like Jackson Pollock, that, and they, they spread through organs like the Iowa Writers Workshop, that the best art just shows, it doesn't tell, it doesn't have a political message, it doesn't, anyone who's got, you know, communist art, class conscious art, that all is too formulaic. It's too formulaic. It's, you're coming in, you're, it's not real art. It's not real art. Only real art, the only real art is art for art's sake. And it can't have any purpose, and it can't teach us anything, it can't show us anything, right? This would be an extreme version of that, but that's where you, and that that's kind of the bias. I mean, I, I think I remember hints of that. In Japanology, too, coming up, you know, just sort of learning about, um, oh, there's, yeah, there was proletarian literature, but anytime anything Marxist gets mentioned in uh, Japanology, it's always like, that was formulaic, it was derivative, it was, you know. And this is an opening that Stalinism, such as it existed, and it was a mass movement, it wasn't something that Stalin himself designed. In many cases, Stalin himself tried to work against it, but... It, one of the things that it touched off was a very culturally conservative movement among uh, in, in the Soviet Union. And that leads to things like the famous uh, illegality of homosexuality and so on, right? Kind of, you know, we need to just buckle up here. And this is, you know, it's kind of like it's part of the, it's part of Leninism. It's part of the dictatorship of the proletariat that for now, we need to just let things like patriarchy and mandatory heterosexuality 
be for now as a strategic matter or something. Thank you for listening to this free preview of a premium episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. If you'd like to hear the rest, head on down to patreon.com, find the Kingless Generation on there, and you'll get access to the full catalog of premium episodes and the Discord server and everything for a very low price. Um, I'm going to keep the price low, but I will say, actually, I used to say I don't need the money, but I will say my financial situation is changing, so I will say I can use the money. I can use it. Um, please head on down and, and subscribe. Uh, and then also that, that justifies my continued uh, use of time on, on the podcast and the project. And it is beginning. It is getting to the point just about where uh, this is bringing in uh, as much money as maybe teaching a, a guest teaching a course at another university or something. So um, I already do spend uh, more time on the podcast than I do on teaching a course uh, in, on average. But hey, you never know. The sky's the limit. How, how big can we make this? In any case, thank you so much for listening. Take care.